I was saying in the beginning, the best thing that you can do is learn as fast as you can, fail as fast as you can, and talk to the customer, stay close to the customer. You do that by partnering and getting someone out of the gate pretty quick with some unique market insights. And then as you start to mature, reevaluate those things. Because there's constantly going to be people out there that are thinking, you know, still 10 steps ahead of you trying to disrupt you. And so if you're not thinking in that disruptive way, you're going to start to fall behind. Welcome to the SMB Tech Innovators Podcast, powered by Gusto. On this show, we explore the intersection of fintech, vertical SaaS, and how software combats the rising complexity of running a business. Our goal is to share stories, advice, and best practices from the leaders and investors behind today's cutting-edge platforms. Here's your host, Shamrat Niyoki. On this episode of the SMB Tech Innovators Podcast, my guest is Roland Leitenberg, co-founder and SVP of Growth and Innovation at Housecall Pro. He's also an active angel investor and advisor to lots of companies, both large and small. Roland, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Shamrat. That's awesome. Well, I know we're doing this late on a Friday, so I appreciate you doing this. I've gotten to know you over the last few years, and I know your role has evolved. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what House Call Pro is all about and your role of growth and innovation. So House Call Pro, we're an all-in-one business solution for home service companies. Everything you can think of in a box. So if you think if someone like Google Calendar plus QuickBooks plus Square plus MailChimp, you know, all these other services had a baby and an app baby. It's one thing and it could fit in the kind of the palm of your hand in your pocket. And you're happy to work in the home services space. And that's what we do. We help our pros become successful. And our mission is to champion all pros to success. And then my role in the company as a co-founder was kind of the early co-founder generalist role, as many co-founders often are. And a focus of mine is really the innovation side of growth. So rather than the incremental improvement, this is more of a step change innovation type growth, where all of a sudden there was something that was not there. Now there is, and now it's this massive part of the business. So it's really doing these larger initiatives, often failing at many. And for the, the big ones that actually win, work well. But it's been that way for the last almost 10 years now, since we started in 2013. And it's been continued growth all along the way. So it's been a fun ride. As I was doing some research on House Call Pro, and it's an interesting sort of founding story. I mean, there's multiple founders, right? And how did you guys start this company? And why did you all decide to jump in? So there's five of us. And I'd say there's four technical people and one non-technical person. And that one non-technical person is myself. I'm a pretty good master at Zapier. And several of us were in the founding team at Qualcomm Labs, which has taken really cool stuff from Qualcomm R&D and building products out of it. And then ultimately, there was a point where we said, hey, you know, what? why don't we try to go build a product of our own? And so we left and we decided to start House Call Pro. It actually started as House Call First, which was actually a trusted way to find local home service professionals. So think Uber for home services. That's how we started. And after about a year and a bit, we pivoted into House Call Pro because we found that most of the providers, the service professionals that we're talking to, didn't have a modern way to run their business. And so we kind of pivoted the business and put all of our focus on House Call Pro, which is now everybody knows today. Did you have some sort of affinity to this market? I mean, there was so much you all could do. Qualcomm could not be a different company. And then here you are servicing the home service market. So Ian, uh, my co-founder and, and previous CEO, now president, his dad was a painter. And so he had a personal affinity to this himself. And then I ran and operated a painting business to pay for college back in the college days, thanks to CollegeWorks Painting. 
and then spun out my own version. So, you know, we have a slight background in the trades, but not necessarily, you know, that's what we did ourselves. And so what we did notice was just a really big opportunity for a class of individuals that are hardworking, the backbone of America that were just underserved from a technology perspective. And what we brought to the table is the mobile background. So back in 2013, you know, iPhone is only a couple of years old. And now the capabilities of the phone were by that time really starting to be capable to run everything that you could to actually run a mobile service business. And that is the biggest thing for our pros, which are their HVAC, plumbers, electricians. This is something where if you're like, oh, I'm going to buy a new car. And then all of a sudden you see that new car everywhere. Once I tell you this, you'll see what I'm talking about. When you're driving, you'll see about one out of every 15 to 20 cars on the road are service trucks. And you'll see logos on them. You'll see phone numbers on them. These are the people that we serve. And because they're on the go all the time, being mobile is super important. So when we launched, we were mobile first and mobile only. There was no web, even though building web is infinitely easier than building on mobile. And so we started there first. And that was one of our early secrets to success because it worked really great from the phone. You could do everything while you're out on the go. And that's what our pros are. And that's what they do. So 2013... Founded the company, evolved into servicing the pros. What is the category that you all sort of self-declare that you're part of? And, and you mentioned these sub sort of sub areas like HVAC and painters. What does home services actually mean in the way you all define it? There's two components. There's like, who are we kind of as a company? And what is it defined from a software category? And then what's the market that we serve? So for the market, who we are is we call ourselves field service management software. So if you're looking and you're Googling, that's the type of software that we are. At its most basic form, it's a CRM, which is customer relationship management, but it's got all the other field service things bolted onto it that you need besides just contact records, which is scheduling and invoicing and dispatching and like all these other components that a traditional CRM wouldn't have. So that makes it kind of the field service management. So that's the category of software. And then the industry that we serve is specifically the home services space. And we're looking at repair maintenance. So what we truly focus on is the things in your home that aren't really big projects, so to speak, to repair or replace. So we are not on the construction side. We're not on the general contractor side. We're not the roofers, the siders, the solar, the construction aspects of things. We are the people that are fixing the things in and around the home the mechanical units inside of it that make the home operate and function. So there are wildly different types of workflows that are required to service those sides. And so we focus on that side, but home service in general, everyone has very similar needs. And so as we continue to grow as a company, we'll continue to be servicing all the people that service the home. And that's our, our grander vision is to champion all those pros to success. Field service, as I understand it, it's been around the software category. It sounds like you all came in with sort of a mobile first approach. Is that the reason why you guys all took off? Or because I understand that field service, there's been players in this category when you all got started. I mean, look, when we started, there were probably a hundred other field service management out there and things out there. And I think, you know, there's just been a lot of legacy software that was written in there. A lot of homegrown built software. A lot of the bigger home service companies that you see out there have built their own system and slowly but surely those have switched to people that are professional software developers. Because as you can imagine running a plumbing company or an HVAC franchise, that's your specialty. Your specialty is in software. Many of them happen to have the means and the software developers to write some internal stuff, but that's resulted in a lot of kind of legacy field service software and larger other companies that have come before us. But I think our take on it has been just simplicity and ease of use. 
because a majority of the market are these mom and pop shops. You know, they've got maybe their son or daughter working for them, a husband and wife team. Maybe their uncle Joey is running a truck and a couple of their friends. And so this is the backbone of America. This is when I mentioned those cars driving on the road, you see it there. It says Joe's HVAC. Well, we are calling Joe and who's using house call pro Joe, Joe and his team. And so those are really the types of pros that we service. And typically most of our customers are doing $10 million a year or under. And those are still very successful businesses and they make even more than you and I, many more than most of our listeners do. You know, So it's something that is a massive market in the US. There's been a lot of companies that have popped up in this category. I mean, probably by seeing the success of, of House Call Pro, at least in the last several years, I know that I think of one of the ones that we hear about in sort of the tech press is Service Titan, which has done well, at least from a funding perspective, but more recently heard about Chopper. How do you all sort of differentiate yourself in this market being actually some of the early pioneers that are creating this market as well? Yeah, I think software is really interesting. And a lot of people go like, well, there can only be one winner in a space. I don't necessarily think that's true. I think that there's different needs for different size companies. And as you think about some of these larger companies, Service Titan is definitely, if you listen to Simon Sinek, but definitely a worthy rival. And they really focus on these much larger size franchises, you know, the Benjamin Franklins of the world, the rotor rooters that you see running around. And that's one sub part of the entire home services market. But for a lot of these larger companies, they need a lot of this extra customization and all these bells and whistles and all these things. And even then they don't always implement all the things, but they definitely need it. For all these smaller companies, which represents 90% of the entire home services market, they need something that's simple, easy to use, mobile, tech-friendly, not a lot of configuration and really specific IT-style knowledge. This is your mom and pop shop that's maybe grown to 20 trucks and is doing really well for their local market. They don't plan on ever franchising because they don't need to. You know, They're taking home a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, plus they have a valuable multi-million dollar business. And that's what they aspire to do and be a part of their local community. And those are the types of people that we serve. And so when you think about the field service management space, it's just so, so massive. And a lot of people can't even comprehend how big it is. And that's why you can find multiple players that are doing fairly well. And then from a field service perspective, you know, there are unique workflows for each different trade. And so you can go super horizontal, but you're going to miss out on some of the vertical needs that are very vertical specific. And so that's where there's always room for smaller players to come in and address just those things. But I think from a business building perspective, it's hard to build a high growth startup addressing only one small niche. You have to address something much larger and have a much larger mission. And for us, it's to champion all the pros to success. And so there's strategy around all of that. And so, you know, as early pioneers in the space, some of the hardest things to solve as a business is customer acquisition. And so beyond just the software itself, anybody can go build and replicate kind of what we've built. You can literally just take it, log in as free trial and try to replicate it. But it's the go-to-market and it's the brand and it's all the authenticity in the community that's irreplaceable. And that's where there's a huge moat. And for any other entrepreneur thinking about things like this, is like, you know, what is your moat besides just the software? I'm curious in the early days, rewind 10 years ago, which sounds like you're just achieved your decade at the company. We see a lot of vertical SaaS companies with their own specific target segments that they're sort of focusing on. And they're all trying to figure out how to go from like 100 customers to 1,000 to 2,000, whatever the targets might be that they set up for themselves. Any tricks or any things that you've learned from your early days? Because as you said, you can look at a product login, more or less copy, but like 
any sort of tactics you've used? Because it's really hard to reach these small businesses. Like, what are some things that you've learned uh, that you've tried that have worked and in some cases didn't work? Yeah, I mean, you hear it everyone around you, but product-led growth is one of the best things to do. And the most core tenant of that is have a product worth sharing. And that means when our plumbers are out drinking a beer with their buddies who happen to be electricians, they're like, oh yeah, I just got a job on my phone. Yeah, it just came in. Whoa, what are you using, Sean? Like, what is that thing on your phone? Oh, it's Housecall Pro. And so those things which are untrackable, very hard to even understand, but that you can see from an organic growth standpoint and just direct hits to your website or direct app downloads, that is the core driver. And so there really isn't a trick, but you only get that level of virality or that sharing if you have evangelists on your side. And so when you're an early company, you can really develop those hardcore evangelists by spending a lot of time with your customers. And in the early days, what we would do is we would have a weekly Wednesday meeting with our pros, with our customers. We take them out to Fuddruckers and Mira Mesa in, in San Diego, and we just buy them beers and burgers and we'd listen to them. And they'd come to us with their app like, hey, why is it when I click this, this thing doesn't work? Oh crap, I didn't even know that. Thanks for being our QA guy. For many years, we haven't had QA. Now, finally, the mature organization, we have all those processes in place. But early days, literally our customers were QA. And because we were so close with them, they not only appreciate it and were able to fix things and build things completely niche to their workflows, but they became those really big evangelists. That's not necessarily the trick, but that's always the thing that I suggest to any early stage company is just be really close to your customers and build those early evangelists. Because even if you build a great acquisition machine on some sort of paid channel, those costs you're not in control of, those can go up, they can go down. You're not in control of that. And why would you hand someone your biggest lever for growth? I, I wouldn't do that. And so it comes back to product-led growth and having a product worth sharing. Let's switch gears talking about some of the things that you're working on, but particularly as you think about innovation, you know, you've been part of sort of step function products. And you know, as you share that there's been some successes and some challenges and this road to building this business. Can you talk about some of the investments you've all made that have actually been really meaningful as you've built your business the last 10 years and the extent you're willing to share, like what are some things that you've failed around, but it was still worth taking that bet and making a run at some of those innovative investments? I would say one of the biggest things that's worked for us is our community. And what's really hard is everyone tries to measure the effective community. And there's tools that are coming out and that integrate with like Discord and, and Twitter and all those things. And for tech-based products, that might work. But I would say for us, you know, we continue to invest in community and do whatever we can within the product and outside of the product to help our, our pros see success. And so we've done so many things over the years. We've done masterminds, we've done meetups, we've done community different events. We do whiteboard Wednesdays every week. We do cryptic Tuesdays every week. We spend time with our pros to just give them SEO advice and things like that. And so I think a lot of the things that have worked is in that community sphere, and then being known as just an honest, authentic guy in our space, particularly the blue collar. Our pros may not have gone to college, some have, but for the ones that haven't, you know, they're definitely the excellent BS detectors and they've got the craziest street smarts. And so if you're anything but authentic, it's not gonna work. And so for us, that's been a really great growth strategy and it's hard to measure. In a lot of startups, you can't go to a VC and say, hey, we want more money because we want to do more community. And it's like, well, how? Like what? Are you going to spend money? Like, how are you going to do that? It's very, very difficult to say. So it isn't easy to replicate, which is why it's a great moat. But that's a really great growth strategy. Another thing we've done is invest a lot around other things that our pros need in their business that aren't even software related. So if you take first principles thinking, you can kind of think of, well, okay, 
if our software grows when more people use it, that only happens if our pros are more successful, which means our pros are getting more jobs. How do we get them more jobs? Or, hey, if they get more jobs, but they don't have enough technicians to do the work, then they're bottlenecked. So how can we help them get more technicians? So these are these analogous things that are kind of outside of what the core of your software may do, but are critical to your customer success. And so you have to think about everything more holistically and from a 30,000 foot view and really know your customer. And so one example for this has been Trade Academy and House Call Pro for Education, which is get House Call Pro into the hands of the folks that aren't even in the trades yet. As they're getting into the trades, as they're going through trade schools and learning those skills, how can you do that and do it in an authentic way, completely for free, and hope that at some point they enter the market and they come into the market with skills and they know how to use House Call Pro of the box? Well, we've got thousands, tens of thousands of businesses that would hire them on the spot if they had the you know, the technical skills, but also the house call pro skills. And so those are investments and bets that we're making that will ultimately be successful in the long run, but they have long time horizons and you can't just like decide to do it. And then by next quarter, does it work? Does it not? You can't. So you have to truly believe in the mission. And if you can do that, you can make those big bets. It's often hard to do as a startup when you're facing a runway and you've only got so many months left. But those are necessary bets that you need to make for long-term thinking, or as uh, Simon Singh says, the, the infinite game. When you were making these bets, I can only imagine internally, there was always like, why would we allocate resources against this big bet that has long runway versus the desire to show progress, like literally the next quarter and so forth? Like, How do you have these conversations? Is there a framework of decision-making that you have found as you've aligned with your other leaders around you? I would say in any space, and definitely in our space, there is no silver bullet. It's lots of lead bullets. And if if people are interested in that kind of thinking, you could go on YouTube and just Google my name. And you can see a talk that I've done about that. But when it comes to lead bullets, you have to be placing many bets at any given time. And so a good baseball team isn't comprised of just people that can get on first base or that can just hit singles all day long. You have to have a mix of single hitters, and then grand slammers. And you have to be moving the business forward as you're striking out. And then every once in a while, you hit a grand slam, and then you, you win those title games. And so you have to have a good mix and a healthy blend. And so that comes from having the right culture internally and be able to stomach some of these bets. And at the end of belief, I don't think you can really argue against if you can help your customer become successful, then you'll become successful. I mean, that's an age-old tenant. Forget who came up with it and said that. But irrespective, you have to believe that to be true if you're an entrepreneur in business. Because if you're not, probably reconsider what you're building or what you're doing. And so if you believe that to be true, how could it not work? Question is, is can you get it to work within a time horizon with a certain channel depth or some certain result? And that's the difficulty. And so, you know, I think as co-founders and as founders of businesses that are hopefully listening to the podcast, you should have the political weight and capability to place these big bets. At the same time, making lots of other bets. This can't be your only one bet. And so my piece of advice there is, you know, tons of lead bullets. There is no silver bullet. Every once in a while, one of those lead bullets can turn into a silver bullet. And you wouldn't have known that if you hadn't have tried it. And so that's my advice is you do have to have a lot of irons in the fire and you're always cooking on things. And there are things that you have to continue to do. So for us at House Call Pro, we've got an amazing mix of other execs that are perfect, that incremental improvement every single day. And that's what they think about. 
And so when you think about building a great business, you have to have that mixture of talent and also desire. What are people interested in doing? I'm really interested in building brand new things and shooting moonshots. But I also respect the incremental change because if you do 1% better every day, well, all of a sudden you're going to have a thousand X, you know, at a certain point. And that's just given over time. So that's where I feel like building that is difficult, but you need to set that understanding and have that mutual respect from the get-go as you're building out your team. Any big failures and, you know, what I call single hitters or double hitters or big on home runs that just completely whiff that you kind of look back and say, hey, this was a big idea that took a lot of resources that just didn't work out? Yeah, I would say there's a lot of other types of industries that can find an individual channel. Maybe I'll just name something that people understand is, you know, if you're building something maybe in the insurance space, if you can get a couple carrier partnerships, you could pretty easily and quickly dominate most of the field if you get them right. And if you miss completely, then you're game over. I think in the home services space, you have less of those. But I'd say early days, there are some distributor partnerships that we've had that have done really well and have really gotten on board and other ones that just didn't. And so when we think about from like a resource allocation, we could have maybe invested in those that really spent the time to also invest back into the partnership versus us just constantly pushing, pushing, pushing. But I still wouldn't have done it any other way because I wouldn't have learned that. And so it's, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. But I would say is don't put all your eggs in one basket. And I go back to that kind of core tenant of, you know, have a lot of lead bullets. Don't just try to go oh, for grand slams, especially out of the gate. You got to give yourself enough runway to then take that big swing at that next at-bat. Can't do it without some singles. You've been involved with probably dozens, maybe hundreds, given the way you're talking about some of the lead bullets on product initiatives. And I'm sure you've had to evaluate this sort of build partner buy. And you know, I'm curious what you've learned in this journey of how to make great decisions on the build partner buy sort of framework. And curious if you have anything to share about how you all make that decision at Housefall Pro and some things you've learned along the way. I think everything, and then my, my whole caveat is take everything with a grain of salt that I say. And I also believe that things are different, stage appropriate. So like if you were to try to replicate my answer of what I would give right now in your early stage startup, you would fail. It wouldn't work. You really got to look at someone who's just maybe within one year in front of you and kind of how they did it. But what I would say is that in the early stages, in order to leapfrog and build things really fast, it's better to partner rather than try to build all of the things. It's the combination of the things that is actually the secret sauce that allows you to attack the market. And as you become a much bigger company in later stage, you need to start thinking about what things are core to the business, what things are not, what things are things that your customer really sees as critical to the business and drives a lot of success with them, and what things are kind of peripheral externality. And between that, as you start to mature as an organization, you know, you should start to embed things, build things yourself and get that incorporated. But out of the gate, if you try to build all the things at once, you will absolutely fail if it takes you a year to get to market. You need to get out there quick, iterate quickly. And oftentimes that happens with partnering, especially at early stage. Don't try to build everything yourself. Over the long run, if you've got a successful business, you could always rip and replace. You can always go build it yourself because you can make a justification of, hey, we need this much resource to go build this ourselves. Here's the incremental dollar spend that we're going to save because here's the cost of it. Is it worth it or is it not? And so every company will go through this decision-making 
points. I would say in the beginning, the best thing that you can do is learn as fast as you can, fail as fast as you can, and talk to the customer, stay close to the customer. You do that by partnering and getting some out of the gate pretty quick with some unique market insights. And then as you start to mature, reevaluate those things because there's constantly going to be people out there that are thinking, you know, still 10 steps ahead of you trying to disrupt you. And so if you're not thinking in that disruptive way, you're going to start to fall behind. Well, I love what you do at House Called Pro. I mean, I can imagine we have listeners that are part of later stage companies that are looking to House Called Pro as a great model of how to innovate and build and innovate along those lines. If we have listeners that are thinking about building an innovation team or kind of building a role as you've defined it, what are some things you've learned this type of roll up for success. I mean, I'm not sure if you're seeing other businesses kind of do something similar to what you've done and what, what you've created. I would say it's easier to build something similar to an innovation team or growth teams if you've always had that DNA from the start. So if you're new to the role in a later stage organization, you really have to buy yourself some runway and some respect by hitting some singles and making some quick impacts to then buy yourself the time to be able to take some bigger hits. And so I would say as you're thinking about building a team, it's going to be more beneficial to have more generalists than specialists in any kind of growth or innovation role because you'll be able to think across many different pathways at any given time. As you mature as an organization, you're going to find many more specialists, which is great for the mature part of the organization. But I would say, as you're thinking about this team, you have to have the correct balance. And so you almost want to have a mini startup within a startup. So if I look at the innovation team, we have engineers, we have designers, we have growth marketers, we have community people. We have all the things necessary to execute on an idea end to end, completely independent of any other part of the organization. Now, we still get you know biz ops support and analytics support and those things from commonly shared functions and marketing support from the greater marketing organization, but you should be able to run completely independently. And if you can do that, at the end of the day, speed is still what matters for whether it's a small startup or a big startup. But remember, you have to have the runway and leeway to be able to make those bets. You have to be able to build that organization And you have to have great people that are typically found more earlier stage companies working within that team. Because in this role, it is less about incremental improvement. It's more about just building something brand new from nothing. It's that zero to one. And then can you scale to a thousand as quick as you can? And then could you hand it over to the greater org to really go put the 10,000 scale to it or more, whatever your metric is. We're going to switch gears here. And I think that's advice for for someone who's working at a larger company. We have lots of listeners that are either bootstrapping a vertical SaaS business. We have some listeners that are early on in building their vertical SaaS business and hopefully going to be raising some capital along the way. I know that given your experience and, and all the work that you've done over the decade, what advice do you have to a founder or an executive at, at these early stage companies as they go out to market and they raise venture capital, you are a venture-backed business. There's a lot of bootstrap. There's a lot of graveyards and vertical SaaS. Like, how do you ensure that you're sort of set up for success? Given you know you've learned a lot, but it's not an easy road. What advice do you have for those that are early on in their journey to build a company in, in a vertical SaaS market? I would say the the most important thing is just being super close with the customers. Literally, like you could build the software in their shop or whatever your analogous version of that is. If you're not super close to them, you're not going to be able to find out what those niche things are that they really, truly need. 
because everyone needs scheduling, everyone needs to invoice, everyone needs to do kind of these basic things, but there's unique parts of a workflow that is unique to a vertical SaaS kind of a solution if you're building that space. And if you're not living and breathing exactly what the customer is, it's going to be very difficult. So I'd say for like new entrepreneurs, is there a way that maybe you can acquire one of these businesses or have it on the side and you're operating both at the same time? So you're literally building it for yourself and with others. That'll get you into industry events. That'll get you into all the things that you might not know from a marketing perspective if you aren't living and breathing in that industry. So I'd say, I really hope you have a passion for that space. And I hope you have a long-term passion for it. Not to say I want to build vertical SaaS and, oh, yep, no one's built something for laundromats or no one's built something for gumball machines or whatever it might be. <laughs> you can build great companies in those vertical spaces. You just have to be really, really close to the problem. And oftentimes people will say, well, like Roland, you weren't a plumber, you were an HVAC and all those things are true, but you can develop that affinity over time and you can do it by just being authentic and hanging out with them and literally riding in the trucks, which is what we did in the early days, buying them burgers and beers and handing out coffee at the job sites, you know, in the early morning. So you can do and replicate all those things. But my biggest piece of advice is stay as close as you can to the customer. Cause ultimately if you're doing any kind of a growth role and you're trying to develop channels, the best way that I've always found is literally write down what people do from the moment they wake up to the moment they go to sleep, like hour by hour. Like, when do they eat lunch? Well, what do they do when they eat lunch? Oh, wow. They listen to AM radio because they're listening to their baseball team. Mm, that might be a channel. Oh, okay. They go to their coffee shop. Wow. Do they all go to the coffee shops all the time? Yeah, because they're up early and then it's cold outside and they want hot coffee. Okay. Maybe there was, you know, do you put a sign spinner in front of every single Starbucks in an area with a thing? I don't know. Do you buy them coffees? It might be cheaper to just buy coffees for every single plumber that comes in a Starbucks rather than spending that on a cost per click. And so as you spend time and as you understand the full daily clock cycle of your customer, what they do, live, breathe, eat, sleep, all the things, then you can identify a lot of those channels and you can only do that by being really close to the customer. And there's an easy hack to that is you could be the customer. And everyone always says that. It's like, oh, be your own customer, right? Eat, eat your own dog food. You don't necessarily have to do that, but it's one way. There are feedback I hear sometimes from the market that's like, oh, this market is too small. And you know, I imagine in the early days, one might say, oh, yes, field service software is a known category, but like we're going to go after HVAC or we're going to go after plumbers. And that was like where your initial focus was. I know it's still broadly defined. Was that a challenge for you in the early days? And I, cause I imagine there's a lot of, I don't know, there was a market for gumball machines, but let's say that that was a thing. Like, is any market just too small? How do you think about whether a market's too small? I think there's two ways to think about it. The first way to think about it is what is too small to whom? So is it too small for the entrepreneur, for their own vision, their own ego, for what they want to build and impact in the world? That's one question. Another question is, is it too small for a VC that wants to see a thousand X return? Is the market big enough for a VC to be able to get some sort of chance at a venture level return? Are there angels who are more supportive of kind of that bootstrapped or just low revenue potential markets? And then I would say, because there are many, there could be many 10 million, 20, 50 million ARR businesses. And those are amazing. And that, but that might be it. And is whoever's investing in that uh, okay with that? And do they understand that vision? Does that match their investing thesis? There definitely are people, um, such as myself, that appreciate that and realize that. I then also say is, if you build for that particular vertical, are there other analogous things? So if you build the gumball vertical SaaS 
Is there the little machine vertical SaaS, you know, where you pick up the little things? And then are there other things within there where like a slight tweak or a slight customization could make an entirely new niche product? And can you expand horizontally like that to like verticals? Maybe. That's a small question that turns into many different questions <laughs> that you have to think about. But I don't think there is any vertical really too small. It just depends on how many people you want to throw at that problem and what's enough to keep someone motivated. I can imagine you are an active investor. I imagine a lot of entrepreneurs come to you that particularly in the vertical SaaS market, if there are listeners out there that are trying to about to go raise money or reach out to you know various angels in the ecosystem, what is important to you as you look at a company or you look at a sector and say, this company has potential. I mean, what are the things that you look at that is sort of core to your belief that says this product and this founding team has an opportunity in front of them? I think it's really important to have technical competency in the core team and the founding team because anything is possible without VC dollars. It's just what's your stomach to be able to go without salary and for how long? So there have been times at House Call Pro in the early days where we had to do the same, where we ran out or we're very close to running out. And so we had to run very lean and mean. And so I think one piece is, is there someone technical on the founding team? It doesn't necessarily always have to be true, but that helps tremendously. And I know that people are like, well, you know, I can find someone technical on those things, but you really have to think like, is that person willing to work for free for a year or more to really fulfill this vision? If yes, I think that makes it very investable because they have to have the stomach to be able to really put their money where their mouth is. And that's the, the time value of the money that I'm talking specifically, right? Of putting into the product. I would also say that being an industry member in that industry or having come from that business is really big. So if you have family ties, have done it yourself, you've got someone close or are you building it for a friend's business or something like that, you have to really, truly live and breathe. And can you do that for the next decade? Because that's what it takes to be successful in vertical SaaS. You can't just go build something and then flip it very easily. I know there's sites out there these days that I'm also an investor in that you can flip sites in and stuff and sell companies even early stage. But if you're in it for the right reasons, that's when you see the most returns because all success comes from just compounding success at the time, right? And so you have to put that in. If the founding team is not willing to do that, then that's a red flag out of the gate. Anything about the market or how you see the segment? I know that there's always someone creating another restaurant point of sale. I mean, you know, there's probably more innovation that can be done there. And it just seems that there's always another version of something that's already been done. Does that a factor into how you think about the opportunity? Despite, let's say, they had a technical founding team or let's say they came from the trade where they're saying, hey, there's this nuanced little thing that's not being addressed. Yep. So when I think about that, I just think, what are the expectations of the investors? And what are the expectations of the founders? If the expectation is to build a billion dollar company, it better be a freaking big vertical or there better be a lot of analogous verticals next by that they can go into. Or there better not be any real big incumbent that is you know, well-capitalized and has most of the things. So I would say it comes down to what are the expectations of the founding team? And if you're thinking about investing, what are your expectations? I would say within any given market, is there things that are like the first thing that you build that you can quickly move into? That's one way to think about it. Can you build for the small one and then scale up, which is what we're doing, right? We started with VSMBs, now we're sort of SMBs, well, in the sense of the word, and then moving up to enterprise. Or do you have enough funding and capacity to launch with an enterprise-based product, which is very difficult to do, but can be pulled off. It used to be easier to do back in the day, 10 years ago. 
Now it's harder because you have got a lot to build before you can even get there. That being said, look at what people's motivations are. <laughs> and if you're looking to invest in the space and come back to it, you got to be in it for the long run. And that's hard. Yeah. Just to end on that note, I mean, you've obviously been in the long run with Housefall Pro for 10 plus years. And I know that there's a lot of new companies getting funded in unique industries and vertical SaaS. And if you had to give some advice on how to play the long game and how to think about this, because it's hard. I mean, you know, look around the economy around us right now, it's not easy. Capital is a little more scarce. What would you say to those founders? We have executives, we have engineers that are building very early on into their adventure. I mean, there's a lot of happening in vertical SaaS. You know, not to, not to trivialize the one thing, but like, what would be the one thing you would say to them that really matter as these founders and operators build vertical SaaS companies over the next years to come? Yeah, I think you have to have a passion. So when I hire for people too, I think about you know what's their ability to execute, what's their intelligence, their raw horsepower, and what's their passion. And if they lack passion, then it's very difficult to be in something for the long run. I don't know how you can maintain passion for many, 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 many years because you're going to be facing hard decisions at a certain point. And that's going to test your passion. <laughs> and if you'd have the true passion for it, beyond just building companies, which I think any entrepreneur should have, it's going to be very difficult to be successful. Those are kind of the three vectors that I hope you have the skills on. I think there's a lot of people that are very smart and that are passionate, but they don't really have a good ability to execute. And so that's uh, for me. And then you've got great operators and they're passionate about a thing, but they just don't have that next level intelligence vector that make it also very difficult to invest in. So I think across those three vectors, you really have to have all three. But of the three, in order for long-term to work, you have to have that passion because nothing else will make up for it. Well, Roland, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to learn more about how you think. I think this is, this is an amazing conversation. You know, Before we wrap up, would love to have you tell more from our listeners you know, how they can get in contact with you. I'll learn more about Housecall Pro. I'm sure there are listeners that might even be thinking about joining a company like yourself, like Housecall Pro. What's the best way for them to reach out to you? If you want to reach out personally, it's just my first name at mylastname.com. If you want to reach out to me, it's housecallpro. It's just my first name at housecallpro.com. You find me on LinkedIn rather easily too. If you're interested in joining Housecall Pro and you think the mission of Champion All Pros and Success resonates with you, go to our careers page, shoot me a note. My information's out there. You can just Google it. Let me know that you applied. Let me know that you heard about it on this podcast and the discussion me and, me and Sharma has been having this not quite hour, but for a nice amount of time. And lastly, if you happen to have a home service professional in your home and you see them giving you a paper invoice and you lament the fact that you have to go bust out a checkbook and you can't find your checkbook and you just want to pay your credit card to get some miles, let them know about House Call Pro. They can just go to housecallpro.com and sign up. We've got a free trial, all kinds of fun stuff. But there's a long way to go in our industry to get everyone using digital version of keeping their business online. And maybe some of you guys know. Well, yeah, I, I will say that I experienced House Call Pro in the wild in Carolyn, <laughs> Texas, where someone came to clean my house and I had to pay through House Call Pro. And so amazing platform, great experience. And so I definitely encourage our listeners to advocate for great solutions like House Call Pro and, and get these uh, small and medium-sized businesses onto new digital platforms like Roland's. Well, that's all we have time today. Appreciate a Roland for you to spend some time with us this late afternoon. And for folks, anything that we mentioned today and today's show, it'll be in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and look out for the next episode. Thanks, Roland. Awesome. Thanks so much, Matt. Appreciate it. 
Thank you for listening to the SMB Tech Innovators Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode of the SMB Tech Innovators Podcast is brought to you by Gusto Embedded. Gusto has spent a decade building and testing its payroll, tax filing, and compliance infrastructure, which is available as a robust set of APIs so you can develop custom-tailored payroll solutions. For more information, go to embedded.gusto.com.